Hello everyone, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. We're building an online community of faith where people can gather together and explore the questions that we have about life together. So it's not about sitting in church on Sunday, it's about how we live every day of the week. So today we have a really fantastic conversation in store for you where I sat down and talked with my friend Javin Bernakovich and he has some incredible wisdom to share with you today. So without any further ado, here is that conversation with Javin. Javin, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Ben. So uh, Javin and I have been connected through Facebook for several years, and we were just talking before the show, and we, neither one of us could actually pinpoint where we physically met in the real world. And I, I think that's kind of a cool uh, story where Facebook has created this connection where we uh, we kind of keep loose tabs on each other and and enjoy things that uh, each other have posted online um, and so it's this kind of virtual friendship and to have him come on this this show for everyone to um, to to share in a conversation with the two of us uh, in this online community uh, that we're creating with the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. So what I wanted to ask you about, Javin, is uh, you, you posted um, a couple weeks ago now, I think it was shortly after New Year's, when a lot of people are kind of reflecting on, you know, the year that they've had and some of their goals maybe of what they would like to achieve or what they would like to improve about their lives in the year ahead and coming into the new year. Uh, and you talked about some some challenges that you had, uh, some storms that you had weathered, and uh, and I, there was something really unique about the way you shared it that was so vulnerable, so authentic, and so genuine. And I noticed that you you had a lot of responses and comments from people that were just so supportive and so acknowledging that vulnerability and that that genuine sharing that. Um, I'd love to just ask you a few questions about that. So in there, you said that you had gone through several months of uh, physical recovery from uh, an automobile accident and just had kind of this season of life where you had a diminished capacity to be productive or to uh, tell me a little bit about about that, if you would, just what you went through, what was difficult about it and what um, how it kind of changed what life looked like for you during a big part of 2018 for you. Sure, Ben. I'd I'd uh, I'd love to. I think a good place to start is to give folks a sense of uh, what my work is and what that workload looks like. To give For folks sure. a sense of about what diminishment looks like. Until we have a sense of uh, metrics of totality, called call it. It's hard to know if what I'm saying has any relative uh, relative nature to it. So, I I work with. Uh, people and land and have done so for about 10 years, both in land design and life design. And within the land side, I work with uh, homeowners. I work with people who are looking for land. I work with municipalities. I work with post-secondary institutions. I help people create good starting plans and then organic processes to respond to changes on the landscape to be both productive and profitable. So I help farmers improve their water retention capacity or most recently helping individuals understand what fire resiliency looks like as we move into yet another very, uh, very variable uh, fire season. 
On the other side, I've been uh, helping and working with folks now for about six years, go through and work through clarity of purpose and focus, helping them make better decisions through a land design process that was wonderful for land design and was created by Alan Savory, but no one had actually applied to people. And uh, then as I became more vulnerable in the work I was doing and, and speaking on podcasts like Permaculture Voices, I started to tell people about depression and anxiety that I had worked through for a number of years and had ended up with a number of tools and toolboxes. And I started getting an influx of individuals, mostly men, who were dealing with depression and anxiety and helping them through their their frustrations and their issues. So I've been steeped in two really interesting pots. I've been steeped in the pot of regenerative land care, management, design, implementation, climate adaptation, and another pot, this pot of life design of clarity of focus, clarity of vision, helping people understand their natural gifts and find right livelihood through that to find meaningful work being one of the major causes of depression and anxiety in our world. And then working on mindset strengthening to have a strong mind to be in a place of sovereignty, to be the to be the creator and the created of our lives. And then to work with narratives and fictions that we all have that almost 100% of the time don't reflect the reality of the situation, but run our programming. So that's that's been my work for the last ten years, and so wow. <laughs> so a, this is a little bit off topic, Javin, but mm. um, diving into that space of applying uh, some of the philosophy and principles that you uh, had worked for years in land design, then into uh, life design. Mm. How did you equip yourself to be in a place to? to kind of teach that to others? Is there a training that you went through or was it a lot of it just based on, um, you know, uh, applying what worked in terms of the principles for having a, creating a healthy environment and creating a sustainable ecosystem and saying, hey, you know, that's not so different from people's lives, human, human beings' lives. That's a great question. There's a macro and there's a micro to everything we do. The macros, the principles, the overall structures and meta principles we're working on and the micro are the tools the techniques when you're working with land design you you work by a, a, a higher order of natural law there's there's man-made law and those are the laws we hold to every day but they are constructed by humans and they are uh, upheld by humans the interesting thing about natural law is natural law doesn't really care about human law and so <laughs> when you place your home in a drainage that has a capture of, you know, two or three square kilometers and you get, you know, a 15 millimeter rain event over the course of an hour, it's not a surprise when that water comes down, hits your foundation of your house and creates a crack. That's, that's not a surprising thing when we're working on, on natural based law. When I was going through my own uh, depression and anxiety, I realized that as I was learning these natural principles through generative land design, permaculture, agrarians, a host of different sort of silos and entities that are all supporting a main cause of regenerative land care, I realized that those same principles applied to people and had applied to me and I had been working with them implicitly or explicitly for quite a while. This idea that there are natural points within a landscape that collect the life-giving element, uh, pardon me, element of of our world, which is water. And so too in people, people have areas in their lives that collect and store life-giving energy, enthusiasm, gifts naturally. And as I started to test and work with um, friends and family who were interested, because I was talking about this, of course, uh, whenever we got on the phone, I would I would wax on and, and 
folk, there was interest. And so the feedback was, we want to know more. And as I was doing that and realizing that there was crossover, uh, a thought which was uh, both profound and inane at the same time hit me, which is, well, of course they apply to us. We are we are a part of nature. One of the major disconnects, which is creating most of the problems we have, is that somehow humanity has come to feel that we're separate from nature, that we, we get some sort of special little lane where what happens to nature doesn't affect us. And as, as you know, as we've been speaking, you know, you do quite a bit of work with folks within regenerative land care. We know that's not the case. What happens to this incredible spaceship Earth happens to all of us. I've got a good friend, uh, or uh, uh, a good practitioner who's become a friend through uh, my recovery of the car accident, which we'll get to. And he has this wonderful saying that there's o- the only separation in the human body is the scalpel. And when you think <laughs> about that, you go, well, yeah, it's a full system. And and when you understand that one system leads to another system leads to another system, theoretically, you believe that, of course, that could be true. Now, I was born and raised in Alberta, and I'm not going to say that um, uh, Alberta is a utopia, nor I'm going to say is it a, a terrible place to be, but it kind of feels like if Texas and Montana had a one-night stand, the product would have been Alberta, sort of <laughs> bigger, better buck, and got to do it like a lone rugged woodsman. And so there's a bit of skepticism, I think, inherent to Albertans. At least there was with me in the way I was raised. And so when I when I got to this, these ideas, I was highly skeptical. I, I, I thought, well, you know, that's a neat idea, but what's the practicality? Like, nice theory. Right. The interesting thing is that when we start to apply this to ourselves, it changes uh, exponentially. So you start playing little tests and little um, little experiments. And so when I started working with this, there was this this concept of values-based living or goal-based living. And in Alberta, goal-based living was the way I was raised. Uh, it was a house. It was 2.5 kids. It was a post-secondary degree. That was quote-unquote winning. And I have still yet to meet another area in the world besides Texas, which is one of the reasons why I make that joke, that has this commonality, this non sequitur. And I worked in the trades for a long time where people would come up and say, are you winning? And you're laying tile and you're thinking, sorry, are you winning? <laughs> it's like, well, it's just a day and we're working. It's, you know, there's not a trophy. There's, there's none of this. You know, the point is, is to get better as a, as, as a person. And that was always an interesting thing to me when when we apply this to this work is that there are these external, call it extrinsic motivators. And most of those motivators are given to us by individuals who have their best interest in mind. So most of the mortgage industry, most of the banking industry, most of the housing industry want you to buy for their benefit, not for your benefit. And I was going to become a financial advisor about 12 years ago. I think I dodged a bullet on that one. And uh, my instructor, who was incredible, had this wonderful saying, if it's being advertised to you, chances are it's not for your benefit. And right. those two things together really made me start to think critically about how I was living my life. And I think a lot of people with faith understand this intrinsically because faith-based organizations realize that there is something about being a quote-unquote good human that has nothing to do with materialism. It has to do with being of service, with uh, with with having faith, with being present and being in community. And so the conversations and the concepts that I found in nature completely transposed onto individuals. And that's when the tools came to play. That's when we started pulling out the toolbox of specific tools and actions. But all of that was really based in these principles that there are, there are natural laws and there are human laws. And 
nature as you and I, and I think everyone on the planet is, is learning very slowly, you know, as, as the mass water of humanity is, we're learning this very slowly that nature bats, bats first and last. <laughs> yeah, that's a great saying. So throughout the course of the work that you had been doing, um, it sounds like there's a real mix there of emotional uh, work where you're, you're dealing with the psyche and the, and the emotions of other people who are um, very likely struggling. Mm. And then also uh, very physical work of trudging through marshes and hillsides and, and look, uh, evaluating these uh, spaces of, of land and, um, and trying to figure out what is best for that specific piece of land, the way you would uh, try to support another person in, in your coaching work or um, the work that you're doing with, through, uh, with people in, in life design. So when you uh, take us back then to, you know, the, the course of events in, through this last year that, that really set you back in terms of your capacity to do what sounds like really important and rewarding work for you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take uh, one step back to say that I work with uh, a decision-making and goal-setting process that's based upon values. So your values are used to evaluate decisions for the decision's ability to bring about what you want in life. So instead of, I want to have a farm, it's I want to raise my children in a clean environment and know where my food is coming from. And the reason I bring that up is it's going to become very apparent in a moment that when we base our, our lives upon goal-based conversations, we end up sacrificing the quality of life we wanted our values. And so one of my values and one of the indicators of success is uh, I work under capacity. And working with an aquaculture specialist, aquaculture being where we grow vegetation and water and we use fish and uh, a few types of microbes to allow for the, fe- the fish feces to be transformed into nutrition for the plants and for the plants to create habitat for the fish. So it's, a, it's an interesting way of producing food. But I hosted a woman who was an incredible expert in it, and she had this wonderful saying in it that then became a value statement that I used to evaluate decisions and guide my life, which is an aquatic system, especially in this situation governed by pumps and tanks and all the rest of it, is a closed system that is still inherently governed by the the rules of nature. And the rules of nature are there are ebbs and flows. So we have moments where there's a huge outbreak of life and we have moments where there's a bit of a trough. So highs and lows, highs and lows. And because of that, we cannot run the system at 100% capacity because at 120 or 130%, it would break the system. And chances are for, for most individuals, you end up losing the entire crop, both the vegetables and a fish. But if you run the system at 80% capacity, which is what she recommended for creating these aquaculture systems of vegetation and fish for growing food, when you run it at 80%, you, you always have the ability to weather the storm, so to speak. And I thought that was one of the most brilliant principles mm. I'd ever heard. So I adopted that into my own uh, context, into the way that I, I live my, my life based on values. So I was already at a 60 to 80% capacity in terms of the total number of hours I have to work per year, which for consultants is about 800 hours. We have a total of about 800 hours we can bill per year. It just works out that way. So as we got into 2018, I was really looking forward to it. Uh, I had a number of, 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 of general themes I was working towards that year. I had a number of thoughts and processes I wanted to complete, a couple of projects I was keen to explore. But I ended up getting sick and I kind of had a double whammy. I had um, strep and pneumonia and, and they were wonderful dancers. When one felt a little tired, the other one would kick in. Oh man. 
And so February and March, I was uh, pretty much laid out. Um, besides the commitments I had, I took on no other commitments. And I was laid up for at least six weeks um, in bed. Did a little bit of work from bed, but mostly rest and slept. Uh, slept and um, just was uh, at a very low amount capacity. And then April and May was recovery. And I was recovering exceptionally slowly. I was going for a five-minute walk and coming back and being quite tired. And so I was I was building, 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 and building. And what was most interesting about those those four months was I think a lot of people deal with this. I've worked with a number of people who do this, is they they define their identity based upon their work. They are what they do. Mm-hmm. And in North American society, I think it's very common and, and super common. In, in Western civilization, and we'll we'll classify that most of uh, you know, Great Britain and the colonies. Um, you know, a little bit of Western Europe as well. Um, we have this thing about, you know, what do you do instead of who are you or what are you passionate about or what do you care about? What, mm. what, what derives meaning in your life? And so I'd done a lot of work on that with myself and I'd done a lot of work on that with a number of clients who had had big projects fail and they'd been spiraled into depression for two or three years. And uh, one client in particular down from the States called up and we ended up we ended up working on integrating his sense of self minus his work. His work was uh, an output of what he did. It wasn't necessarily the core of who he was. Right. Uh, Which is interesting. So I already had that. I already had that going on. But now I was in a place where it wasn't just my work. I I was, as, as, (laughs) as a being, I was producing very little much of anything of value um, unless something ran on um, complaining, which I did a fair <laughs> amount of. Tried to be aware of it, but you know, I, I still, haven't, uh, still haven't found the machine that takes complaints and turns them into energy. But otherwise, you'd have been a great fuel source, eh? Uh, oh man, I yeah yeah. The, so do, now, give me a little bit of because I don't know. Do you like? Yeah. Do you have um, a family at home that was having to kind of care for you? And mm. uh, do you, are there little ones running around the house, or is that not part of the equation for you? Or what did that? Yeah, look so I've, like? I've I've got a, a fantastic supportive partner, and uh, they came with two bonus daughters. So I I ended up lucking into uh, two incredible um, women there. They're, they're into their adult years. One lives with us, one, one doesn't. Okay. Um, but for the most part, I, uh, the, the responsibilities of family were low. It was mostly my responsibilities and the responsibilities around the house, which Got it. Um, was kind of the bare minimum of what I was taking care of, plus the work that I was doing with land and life. So th- then what, what came after that in terms of you, you had a, a slow recovery period, which you probably aren't used to being that you're young and uh, a very healthy individual. Um, so it, it can kind of really rock a person's world to be taken out for more than just a few days. You know, we all get the, a cold or a flu that has us laid out in bed for a few days, but six weeks is a long, that's a long recovery period for someone that's young and healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the six weeks were the weeks of complete and utter uh, loss of capacity. The The following two months was the, the road to recovery. Um, and so the road to recovery was part and parcel realizing that, that my work and who I was as an individual was tied to my spirit, my soul, my will, and realizing that there are slow times and go times in life. And... This is again one of these natural laws: is that there are peaks and troughs in all productivity and 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 systems, and 
when what we look upon as a drought, be it through the lens of a farmer or through the lens of an ecologist or through the lens of a city planner who, who works on the water facilitation side of it, um, that has real implications and usually negative implications. What we forget, though, is that the resting points is where the system generates further connections, further insights, evolution, if you will, to then plunge back into the fray. Ah, uh, and that, that was one I, of that's a beautiful analogy. <laughs> it, again, nature nature provides all of this. We we've we've done ourselves a huge disservice and closed a book of knowledge that is endless by saying that 4.5 billion years is wrong and we're going to think of something smarter usually in the span of about 80 years because some of us who are, let's say, moderate intelligence look back and stand on the shoulders of the individuals come before, but a good number of us don't. We think we're going to think it perfectly and right the first time within our, our short amount of years on this planet and it's pure ego uh, to think <laughs> right. that we could do anything For sure. of... Of, of greater merit and greater conversations. So that that piece was really realizing that this was no longer a go time, this was a slow time. And uh, one of the surefire ways to suffer in this world is to argue with the reality of the situation as it is. And the reality of my situation was I didn't have capacity, I didn't have excess. And the times when I was suffering was the times when it was, uh, I was, I was balking at that, I was refusing to realize that. and. Pain is a part of life. Suffering is a choice. And it's something that has become, it was something I knew, you know, from a knowledge base, but until you go through it, you don't really know. And it was towards the end of my, you know, six weeks of uh, infirmity where that started to become a uh, reality. And my mood changed, my attitude changed, even a little bit of my energy changed because I realized, yes, I've gone through more Kleenex than I know what to do with. And I'm going to be planting trees for the rest of the year just to make up for it. But I don't have to suffer. This is not a suffering moment. And those moments were really the moments that were the gifts, the gems in this. And that's what I find a lot of clients um, forget is that everything in life, everything in life is a potential training process. I worked with a client down the States who was came into a new family and she and uh, her husband um, were dealing with a family member that was in-house and was requiring almost full-time care. And it was draining her to the point of exhaustion. And what we talked about was this training conversation. And this is, again, this is a natural law. Um, so systems grow by disturbance. We They grow through volatility. And humans are a great example and, and nature's a great example. So you get um, a big amount of, of stress or disturbance or volatility on a human body, let's say like weightlifting. And if you do it for a short amount duration with the right amount of weight, without straining or stressing the body to its fragilities, the body then goes into inroading. And when it recovers, it builds the muscle back that was torn and it builds a little bit extra because the body has this sense of, okay, we want to make sure we're ready for uh, as much weight or more the next time. Right. Nature does the same thing. So when when there is disturbance, when there's a, a large amount of stress, again, over a short period of time, there tends to be inroading and there's more connections that are made. There's more in, uh, individual connections that make for further resiliency or anti-fragility, fragility being that volat uh, volatility reduces functionality, whereas anti-fragility is volatility can increase functionality, which is the same thing as why would anybody want to pick up really heavy weights and put them back down is because you train your body 
to be more adaptive, to be more anti-fragile. And as soon as I relayed this to the client um, with the, the home, in-home care conversation, we built a process whereby she could rest and then come back and pick up the weights of these responsibilities. And, and that led into some limiting belief work and some mindset strengthening because we all have certain pieces that really affect us greatly. So in my situation, once I realized that this was a training conversation, I approached being sick as training. I approached recovery as training and finding the limits of how much I could train and then stepping back and not falling into the, well, I want to be better now, which is a great way to suffer, but <laughs> interesting, this is who I am today and this is what I have to work with, which is another tool of sovereignty that I, I came across and have used with many clients is starting to train our responses. So training our responses, first and foremost, is interesting. So whenever anything happens to go interesting, because immediately that puts us out of an emotional reaction and it puts us into an emotional, cognitive, almost, and sometimes a spiritual response of what's happening here, which is the mm -hmm. most fundamental question we can ask in regenerative land care. So in what's, a, in what's a sense, you're consciously choosing to just kind of suspend for a moment the idea that something is good or bad. Mm-hmm. So realizing that uh, I'm seeing this situation as bad or I'm seeing this situation as good is our meaning or our interpretation that we're applying to the objectively neutral events or facts and just saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let go of any judgment of this being good or bad for a moment and just see it as interesting. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly it. That's exactly cool. it. Cause everything else is memory story. All of that is, is programming. I work with a, mm -hmm. a number of men in linear professions. The way I work really resonates with them. So, so I just end up with a lot of engineers, IT programmers, um, construction workers, you know, folks who see linear conversations, but also know that design helps individuals become better. And one of the things is realizing that when we respond to something and we say it is quote unquote good or quote unquote bad, it is based upon a comparison with a story we have in our mind. And almost always, actually without exception, that story doesn't apply to the situation because we are a different person in a different place in a different time. So that conversation runs the risk of moving out of the moment, going back to where you were in the past and usually making the same decisions that you made then because you're running the same script. It's kind of right. like being a player piano and putting the exact same tune in and you're just playing that same tune. And we all know people like that where they're going through something and they're going through it again and you're, you're watching them and they're doing the exact same thing because they're taking that same program and they're running the same conversation. So interesting is the first training step in response versus reaction. Now, interesting graduates to fascinating. And me being a Star Trek fan, I always think about Spock lifting the eyebrow and going, <laughs> fascinating, because that adds curiosity and a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of passion, not so sterile as interesting, but now it's curiosity that's driving you. Right, what, what can we do with this? That's right, what's the raw material here that I can mold or work with? Because again, if the car accident happens, if the sickness happens, if the family member dies, these are all moments of intense grief. I'm not, I'm not waylaying grief. I'm not saying ignore grief. Grief is a, a wonderful companion to praise. Uh, I think Stephen Jenkinson is the one who said, we build up grief as we build up praise, as we praise mm -hmm. and love moments with individuals. We are building up that amount of grief that will be felt at some point when a parting happens. And 
that's not the point here. The point is, is to realize that everything that happens to us is a potential building block for something better. Or one of those stories that then becomes further integration into a programming that actually doesn't allow you to advance as a person, as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a, a colleague. Uh, none of those allow us to advance. It just keeps us safe and in a small place that mm. usually feeds our ego because then we get to be that wonderful word, which most of us need to lose, right. Yeah. We get to yeah. be right. Oh, well, that's how that situation was supposed to run. Instead of saying, I think this might be this, and I'm curious about this, and I'll be fascinated to see what the result is. So so take us through what your journey then was like, Javin, as you were um, starting to turn the needle back up in terms of uh, as you were recovering, I'm guessing you realized that, okay, I'm now, I'm now moving from 20% capacity to 25 and 30 and, and celebrating those little wins. Did you have a temptation to, to really push the gas pedal and get, get back on track, get caught up on work, get back to life? Or were you able to, was it difficult to, um, to look at that raw material that you discovered throughout that season and say, let's, Let's slow down, take our time, and, and see what we can do with this. And, and uh, like, what did you learn from that? I would say that my process was one of exactly your description of going from one of, okay, now I got 20%, let's push to 35. And then having the feedback of, okay, now we're going back down to 15 because you didn't decide to be responsive or listening to your body and to what your capacity was. Mm. So there was multiple times where I went above and beyond because I was so excited to get back to a place of exercise and fitness and um, activity and, and cognitive activity, but was was pushed back pretty hard. And I would say it was sort of a, a, a very slow pupil training process where <laughs> uh, I, 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 being both the pupil and, and the teacher at the same time, was just multiple facepalm moments of like, when are you going to realize that you're ready when you're ready. You, right. You're not going to be there until you are. And pushing doesn't make it happen faster. Did you and ever, so, ex sorry to interrupt, but I just am really curious about a question that I'm worried I'll forget. And that is that I think for so many of us, like especially as men and especially as young men who are in their peak of their prime productive years, and as a, as a in, in, in your career, I'm curious if you ever felt a pressure from other people to um, to get back to that 80 or 100 or 110% productivity um, after recovering from an illness like, and, it's, and especially as someone who's um, had some mental health struggles which are invisible, it's not like you're, you have a cast on your leg where someone, you know, others looking at you think, oh, well, obviously, you know, this guy's got a good excuse for not being at work. When you're, when you make that decision to, listen to your body and to listen to your own mental health and say, you know what, I, what I need right now is to, is to take the slow road of recovery and I need to take my time and I need to, to go back to work incrementally. That can so often be judged and, and looked at from others as, oh, you're, you're being weak or you're being lazy or what's wrong with this guy? Like, did you ever struggle with what, what others were thinking and, and perceiving or was this just you were battling against your own ego? So I can't say that I had anyone saying, why aren't you doing more yet? Uh, I, I, I didn't have that. I, I had a projection of that in my mind that 
it doesn't look like I'm doing much because while I was working with my depression that had a, a cycling conversation where I would have low points and then high points and low points, which mimicked a lot of what we call manic depressive, but was not, I would during the high points, try and make it look like I had done a ton and tried to do a ton because the low points were so extended. Um, when I got into this situation this year, it was, it was the realization that the projections I had of the friends and the colleagues who, who were working with me that I should be doing more. I should be out there more. Cause I've, I've been quite, um, uh, prolific in my work within the regenerative space for the last 10 years. And it was a realization that before had actually been the error, not currently that before listening to individuals saying we have to do more, we have to create more was the same conversation of consumption and growth, which has led us to some of the ecological problems we have that I was starting to fall under the spell of in my recovery. Mm. So yeah, I'd say if we were going to just be point blank about it. Yeah. I had some of those frustrations internally that I was projecting outward, but outwardly in no, uh, except for the fact that I had, I had, I had trained people. I had, I had worked with enough of my friends and colleagues for them to ask, you know, what are the projects you're working on now? And for me to say nothing or one or two things, I think stopped them more than it stopped me. Mm, it was just surprising then. That's right. So that's right. And, and then to speak to that and to, to let them know why and for them to kind of stop and go, nothing really stops you. That's whoa. Like you must be sick. That was really interesting to me to hear folks clue into that and, and take a step back. Got it. So, so tell me a little bit about how that separation uh, between what you do for a living or how you fill your billable hours and who you are at your core. How did, how did this journey teach you more about your own identity and, and who you are minus your work? Well, it's a little bit like anyone. And I've, I've, I've had a couple of close friends who've had this issue where a disease or an autoimmune issue has reduced their physical capacity to where they are mostly their, their mind and their spirit. And I think in Western civilization, this is true, but for me personally, I, you know, I'll raise my hand and say, this is, this is totally me. I rely on my intellect. I was, I was gifted with, um, some intellectual capacity when I was younger. I have decent analytical and analysis skills, and I tend to lean heavily on those instead of leaning on, let's say an emotional intelligence or leaning on a, a spiritual intelligence or a capacity. And what I found over this time is that it was realizing that I couldn't think my way out of this. It was actually more a physical, emotional, spiritual uh, trifecta that I had to be present to, not even work upon, because those those areas of our lives are more about being present to and responsive to instead of saying, well, I brought my big brain here and I'm going to you know, process <laughs> everything and make sure it's you know exactly how it needs to be. Um, Tom Brown, the, the American trapper, has this lovely saying, what's the loudest thing in the forest? And the answer is the human mind. And it sounds like a trash can rolling down an alleyway in a suburb at about 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, it's that click clank click clank click clank click Yeah, we just can't even shut them down. Like, I think so many people have, have uh, difficulty with that, especially in the last 
handful of years where we've had these devices in our hands that keep us engaged, 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 and, and switched on, that we're, uh, we're, we're losing that ability to just quiet our mind and, um, and be at rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So to your point, how did I, how did I separate this, what I do for a living as, as in terms of who I am as a person, but more so for me, because I'd, I'd done some of that work, what I do, period, is who I am. A lot of that was taken up by some practices that I had lucked into over the last four years. One of them was meditation and specifically through the Vipassana uh, school of thought, which if the stories are to be believed, um, this was the original teaching of the Buddha. Just like, you know, the, the, the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. Um, Jesus Christ didn't teach Christianity. <laughs> That's right. They, they taught principles and practices. Um, and so this is apparently the way that the Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, um, attained enlightenment. And it's, it's a scanning process of scanning your body for sensation and then being equanimous to that sensation, not craving it, not being adverse to it, just realizing that sensation has come up and to let it go. Because within this, this, this process, this practice, it is the connection to those sensations which brings suffering. You have a, a, a euphoric sensation and you love it and you want more of it. And it dissipates as all sensations do and you feel frustrated or you have a sensation of pain and you're like, I don't want that. And it persists and then it eventually leaves, but not at your will, not at your timing. So hmm. there's suffering. So that was interesting because that brought me to what the Buddhists called big mind or stillness or void. Um, Sufis call big love. Um, it brought me to that, that state of just observation, that zero limit place where you are connected with source or with light or with um, divinity, however it is that you you speak about it. And, and that was that moment of realizing that I am more than my intellect, I am more than my emotions, I am more than my physical self, my social self, my intellect, of course, that we are and life has intrinsic value. And I think we've lost that conversation generally um, being underneath a corporate capitalistic society. We we've moved to money and we've moved to exchanging our needs through finances instead of exchanging our needs through others. And there's, there's a number of great books that are out right now. One of them's lost connections by Johan Harari, who speaks about the major sources of depression is not a neurochemical imbalance in the brain. Sure. That's one of the signs or the signals or the symptoms, but more often than not, it's, it's connection. It's connection to self connection, to meaningful work, to others, to good values uh, so all of that kind of came to play. Uh, the other thing that was quite big was uh, reduction um, and continuing my love and my connection with nature of being in the place that that birthed all of us and realizing that the homes, the furnaces, the lights, great inventions, the phones, great inventions, great abilities to connect, but taking a more Amish approach to it, which is, the Amish haven't completely uh, uh, removed all technology. They're just highly skeptical if the technology will add to the quality of life. And so there's there's allowances to, to try new technologies, but always under supervision and always with the understanding that if it affects the community, we're going to let it go. Because the point mm. is, is to have connectivity and community or to cultivate oneself. One of the regenerative agriculture pioneers out of Japan, Masanobu Fukuoka, had this wonderful saying that the point of agriculture is not to cultivate the land, but to cultivate humanity. 
to realize that we are a small part within a much bigger system, not a machine, but a system that when we play with and work with and submit to and become humble to, we find an incredible amount of solace within ourselves. We, wow. we find a, a beat and a resonance within our, our life instead of, I know best, here's my intellect, here's my app, you know, yeah. all these things that yeah. we deal with today, which are, are ultimately, uh, you know, in the big picture, distractions. And they're distractions and they create a lot of noise and they don't allow us to connect to the signal of what's true for us. Wow. So it, it, this learning uh, and self-discovery journey that for you has, I mean, it, it's not isolated to the recovery from this illness that you're describing, but it sounds like you had, you had a car accident as well that I'm sure had some parallel um, uh, cycling of uh, reduced capacity and, and recovery. And no doubt you've had other experiences throughout your adult life and childhood mm -hmm. where you've uh, this, this uh, lifelong learning has been um, continually just building on and building on it. Take us kind of in these next last few minutes of the, of the show here of the, of this uh, conversation through how did you get to where you are right now today from mm. this, uh, this point you were describing of reduced capacity? So the year plays out with, um, a big emotional upset with a family member, um, August, September, uh, and then leads into this car accident, which uh, a deer hit me. Uh, and I've been reduced in physical capacity with some chronic pain that still persists today. Um, and some cognitive uh, capacities to the point to where because of the concussion, uh, post-concussive like symptoms that I'm experiencing, I've been reduced to about 15 minutes on screen time, 45 minutes off. Um, you try and do something on with 15 minutes of your time wow. <laughs> on yeah, a computer no kidding. or two hours total in a day. Uh, so where I am today is really interesting. And, and part of the post was realizing that there's an incredible gift of making it through hard times. And there's this wonderful connection uh, I heard about where um, a Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese father or grandfather was being asked by his his children who were born here in Canada, you know, was it better back in Vietnam in the village or was it, is it better here in Canada? And, and his explanation was quite simple. Um, um, hard decisions, easy life. Easy decisions, hard life. Hmm. Saying that when we have hard decisions or hard interactions in life, it, 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 things to, to work with, it usually makes for an easy life because the comparative analysis is, okay, that was tough. Everything else is quite easy. I don't have a lot of problems. And the work I've done in Kenya and Uganda and Cuba, that's the wonder, wonders of travel. When you travel to other places, you get the distinct impression that comparison is, is a wonderful thing and you're okay. Life's pretty good. Not only that, but in so many parts of the world where people have what we would look at and think, oh, they have, they have so little, but they are smiling and they are so yeah. happy because it does give them that perspective that the important, everything else is easier. And, and those connections with family and the community, they emphasize those because in some cases that is all they have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've, I've practiced volunteer, uh, voluntary hardship for a long time. And probably at times when I shouldn't have, when I probably should have been <laughs> kinder to myself and that's reduction of food, reduction of luxuries, doing long distance backpacking with minimal supplies, wearing very simplistic clothes, you know, being at a place to where I have some 
conscious hardships in my life. So that way I'm never into a place where I'm completely comfortable with, with everything. Now, folks might think that's very austere and stoic. Uh, yeah, to a point, but the result is I'm way happier. And that was the cool thing about depression and mental illness is that having made it through both of those pieces and still integrating and working with those, those aspects today, I, it took a, uh, a practitioner, an RMT who was working with me to finally say, wow, you've had quite the year for me to even look back and go, yeah, I guess you're right. Because mm. I, I hadn't naturally gone, woe is me, what a year. And that's what prompted that, um, that post because a friend of mine asked me to go onto the podcast and talk about the lessons from 2018. And as I started thinking about them, a lot of the lessons were, were very apt and very poignant for my life. And they happened because I been given these gifts of really intensive trainings of really interesting challenges that until you go through, you don't know, you don't know what it's like to lose 90% of your capacity in your work and, and try to figure out, okay, well, how am I going to, how am I going to produce income on 10% of what I can do on a daily basis, Yeah, which is a really great experiment. And what I remember, I remember the very first business class going into this, this gentleman saying, okay, well, I want you to run through this exercise. I think I might've entertained it in my mind for maybe five minutes thinking, well, you know, I'm sure it's important, but I'm not going to do it. It's never going to well, happen, right? Never going to happen. But here it was and really thinking about it and wondering what it is I am going to do. And what's so cool about where I am today is that there's, there's a number of things that have become uh, hyper clear about my direction, my focus, my gifts, the places I want to give back to my community. <laughs> and there's a number of things that I've been doing that don't matter anymore whatsoever projects, conversations, management, you know, we, we manage a finite amount of energy in a day. And if there was any meta lessons, this was one of them. Well, I have a finite amount of energy. And if anything I do in my day isn't directly connected to my quality of life, my family's quality of life, and how I want to give my gifts to the world, I'm not gonna say it's a waste, but it doesn't necessarily go back into what feeds me. Mm -hmm. There's, there's this idea of regenerative, regenerative being more than what you had generative or sustainable being the same. If you sustain a note as a musician, it's the same. And degenerative is less than you had. So regenerative is more than you had. So when I do these podcasts, when I talk about life design, it's regenerative. I'll, I'll be stoked for you know two or three hours. It'll be like I just drank um, a nice caffeinated tea. It's something that feeds me. If I have to go and work on somebody else's work, or if I have to do something off of my center, off of what gives me resonance off of what gives me enthusiasm that takes energy from me and doesn't necessarily give back to me again natural principle we have processes skills abilities to work with nature being able to take and also to regenerate to have that core asset always there it's the same thing as as growing money within a an interest fiat uh, banking system if you take out the principle you've lost the ability to produce right. interest which you can live on and Natural capital is very similar. There's ecological functionality. There's there's benefits. And there was a wonderful study done by uh, the University of British Columbia many years ago that talked about how the harvesting, the wild crafting capacities of a forest outweighed the clear cutting or full extraction exports of a forest by a factor of 10. If you left the forest intact, there was a 10x return of wild crafting, of distilling, of of just harvesting in a minute quality, but doing it in a way that was regenerative, not just sustainable, but regenerative for the forest. Just like when deers, when deer browse on shrubs, they actually produce more so. So 
my state of being today is realizing that one, that is uh, a possibility. I can be reduced incapacity for eight months of the year and a month of high emotional frustration. So call it nine out of 12 at any time, because I could get sick again. I could get in a car accident again, and I, I could have a big emotional upset with a family member. Those are all possible. Uh, I now know that they're not only possible, but they have a probability to them, not just in my head, but in life. In real life, yeah. Which then leads me to what are the systems, processes, abilities that I've learned from this, and what are the main lessons? And a big one was I need to understand that my time on earth is hyperfinite, and it's wonderful to be close and to use sickness, to use, you know, maiming. I, I had this wonderful instructor in a wilderness first aid course that said, you know, we're pretty tough to kill, but we're really easily to maim and <laughs> be maimed for a long time. And that has brought, you know, health back into focus. That has brought exercise back into focus. That has brought time off of the computer, time off of devices, more time with the individuals who support me, realizing that those are the loops that need to be strengthened. I readopted and strengthened a practice of closing open loops, just like we have open browser tabs on a, a browser or open applications that reduces the capacity of our computers. The more open loops we have as individuals, the harder it is to move on to new things or to have time for the things that really support us. Mm. Doesn't it just feel so good? To, I was just saying this to my wife recently that um, during the Christmas break and then in the last couple of weeks since going back to work and kind of slowly getting back into work, I've, I've gotten a few things on the to-do list cleared off and it feels so good to organize <laughs> that cupboard that has been just stuff falling out of it for years or, you know, what fixing something that was broken that, Oh yeah, I'm mm -hmm. going to do that. I'm going to do that. Um, it just feels so good to, to clear that clutter uh, whether it's physical, like stacks of stuff on your desk or, mm. um, or just mental clutter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tripping hazards, right? They're, they're the things that's, that are always in the way that reduce the, the desire lines. It's an architectural term that when you finally put in the buildings, people will show you where they wanted to go, which is almost never where you put the pathways. So when the university of Calgary was created, they left the, um, they left the, the architecture in place, but they left the landscaping for a year to watch where the students actually walked and tried to put the pathways there instead to follow the desire. Interesting. And and that's really where we're talking about open loops. If if the loop hasn't been closed, there's something missing. And more often than not, we just put the same effort into it. And what I've developed is a, a process I work with clients, uh, clear and complete, where at the end of the day, I try and clear anything that was supposed to be done in the day or take it to a different step or a different process. So if by the end of the day, I still haven't connected with a number of folks about the documentary I'm working on or haven't worked on a, a few of the other pieces, uh, marking students' assignments or connecting with one of the life design students, I then reevaluate what the process was because obviously there's something there that's not working. And mm. similarly for a week, anything that was supposed to be done on a week and a month. And my year is my favorite. The clean and clear over the year is my favorite because anything that I couldn't get done in a year either was obviously not that important or two, <laughs> there's a dramatic thing that's underlying in my own world and life that is really impeding my ability to complete. And that's, that's, or those are part of me, the, the moments that I find so invigorating about life, getting better, you know, better by design is, is one of those things that I love. And that's, you know, full circle, 
looking at, I was involved in two podcasts last year, Uncertified Rational and The Science of Permaculture, and realized that both of the individuals I was working with had other commitments and we were we were having a hard time connecting. So all of that's going underneath one house, one podcast called Better by Design, which is right now in the works to be launched very soon. So that way I can do the thing I really love, which is this. I went to school uh, to go into radio broadcasting. This was before podcasts were uh, very popular or even a, a mainstream thing. I just thought I had to go and be the disc jockey who was completely false and fake and right. you know yucks it up. But this is one of my favorite ways to connect with individuals. The well, responses I've had from podcasts have been exceptional. That's what's so cool about the um, the medium of podcasting is that there's no uh, there's no station or editor that's that's telling you you know you need to stay on message or you can you can't say this you can't say that you got to work this soundbite in it's just and in lots of cases it's it's almost unedited or it's completely unedited it's stream stream of thought stream of consciousness conversation that we we lack uh in our modern society we there are very few opportunities to engage mm. in that um mm-hmm. so if you can throw your headphones on and listen listen to that type of conversation that type of free-flowing thought for half an hour for an hour for two hours while you're engaged and you know you might be going for a walk or driving somewhere um it can be so fruitful and to be the one who's standing in front of the mic and sharing um it's rewarding it's really meaningful absolutely and we are at in which is the coolest thing is to be inside of a revolution we are inside one of the largest revolutions and revelations, which is self-publishing of text, video, and audio, which is at the same level or higher than the Gutenberg press. We can have two, three-hour conversations. We no longer have to be reduced to the 60-second sound bite, the six minutes on television, which is all based upon advertising, which is, again, a terrible way to construct discourse. To only have discourse constrained by monetary values means you're going to have uh, a a toxic form of discourse, one that's forced to make a certain type of conversation, whereas long form is a birthright. It's something that we're encoded to understand. We would sit by fire and we would listen to each other's stories for hours. We know stories. we, We understand them to our core. So to listen to them... And I love, you know, this is one of those those weird things that I understand from a, a scientific perspective, but I completely and utterly become childlike when I'm sitting there listening to a podcast and lose myself and realize when I try to locate where the voice is, it's in the center of my head. Somebody else's voice is in the center of my head and nobody's <laughs> around me. It's it's a direct beam, which is the other side of this, which I think is, is prudent and... Um, and important and and we're both responsible to say is that we are what we eat we know that and we are what our soil eats we know that so if our soil eats something bad and transfers it to the microorganisms and the microorganisms transfer it to the food and we eat the food it moves up the scale it moves up the, the chain similarly but almost wholly ignored we are what we consume from a media and a content conversation and not all media is made the same it sounds like the the intent and the purpose of what you're doing with this podcast sounds like it probably has a you know a high nutritional content but i think a lot of individuals you know try something out without then having a feedback loop of 
you know, did I have an equivalency of food poisoning because of that? Were the <laughs> ideas transmitted not one based in love, not one based in connection, based in hate, based in opposition, based in marginalization, based in demonization, which happens a lot with folks who are working in regenerative agriculture or the quote unquote left. We'd like to um, take a look at the field of the people who are working and say, well, they're doing all right, but they're not doing this, this and this, where again, quote unquote, the right, which is still a, a, a facade of a binary disposition. There's no such thing. You know, these individuals tend to fire outwardly and support each other, which is a really interesting, interesting social commentary to see between the two sides. But it still comes back to the fact that we have to be very careful about what we digest. And I've realized this full circle because the times that I was sick and also the times I spent in Vipassana and meditating, silent meditation, a lot of those scenes, those ideas come back up. And it was that moment when I realized I have to be very careful about what I consume mm. um, visually, textually auditorily because they do leave lasting impressions. And I think it, it behooves you and I and, and all of us in the space of creating content to ensure that we put out the best content possible to not put out things that may lead people astray or, or, or have an issue of uh, factuality, but to really do our best and to bring our best to this work. Because at the end of the day, I think that integrity doubles and triples and has an exponential effect as it goes out. Yeah, it. I mean, the the litmus test to me is 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 it life giving? Is it truth? Is it based in truth? Like you said, and is it does it have fruit? So my hope with these episodes of this Six Ways from Sunday podcast is, I mean, even in the name Six Ways from Sunday is about the idea that there are so many paths to uh, living a good life to to being a loving person. It's not about sitting in church on a Sunday, although that's super meaningful for lots, lots and lots of people. It's also challenging to do for a lot of young families to, to get to a church and, and find that place where they feel safe and feel like they belong. But there are so many opportunities through things like podcasts and blogs and other media now today where you have that busy, busy life and, you know, um, there are still so many ways to connect with other people and to connect with ideas and conversation and content that really is life-giving. So mm. I, I think we maybe this is a good place, Javin, to, uh, to wrap it up for today. And I just am so grateful for you for this time and f for everything that you've shared so vulnerably and authentically from your um, experiences over this last year. And it sounds like you've you've come to a place where um, you really are reaping the fruit and the rewards of leaning in to the, um, those difficult um, low points and, and low productivity uh, periods of time that you went through. And it just it's so impressive. It's, uh, I think there's so much in that that you shared that will speak to so many people listening to this and offer a lot of uh, potential tools and insights and inspiration to others. So um, yeah, keep on sharing your story, man. I hope you get to, to, uh, to share it on, uh, on other podcasts or just, uh, any other opportunities you have. It's, it's a powerful story to, sh to share for sure. Well, thanks very much for having me on Ben. I appreciate you reaching out and us formalizing our, our Facebook friendship. This feels like uh, a good, a good uh, way to connect. And if folks are interested in learning more or uh, connecting more with some of the other podcasts I've done. You can learn more about me at allpointsdesign.ca and the podcast are allpointsdesign.ca forward slash podcasts. And if this was useful to folks, I always love hearing from people. I love 
um, hearing what the value was and the interaction. This is one of the great feedback loops for me and, and would love to hear from people at, uh, at Java at allpointsdesign.ca. But Ben, I have to say thank you so much. I think this is a wonderful way to connect with individuals and to, to spread, you know, the three things that everybody needs when it comes to communication. You know, is it, is it truthful? Is it necessary and is it kind? And you guys and the way you, you do this work, I think exemplify that. Uh, I appreciate that a lot, Javin. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for your, for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Most welcome. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. I know I did, and I can't wait to go back and re-listen to it again, maybe even take some notes, because I think there's nothing better than listening to someone share their own personal wisdom from their own journey and what they've learned from going through hardships, from going through tough periods of their life. And Javin had so many, uh, so many wise things to share with, with our community. So thank you again to Javin for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next week for the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Take care. Take care.